0: Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of
1: TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech bystander rescue care program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. So, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jennifer Dingman, who has uh, been a long-standing leader in patient safety, served on national committees, national boards, is a published author. Uh, most importantly, she's been our voice of the patient throughout this coronavirus crisis. Uh, she is the 2018 winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for great work in uh, national programs that have saved uh, many, many lives and many, many uh, millions of dollars. Uh, Jennifer, would you please set our course heading for today?
2: Thank, Thank you, Dr. Denham, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's program about how stressed out our emergency safety net is. This is really, really important for all of our participants. I urge you to please share the future video with your colleagues, friends, and families. And again, thank you all for being here and I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham.
1: Thank you, Jenny, and thank you for all you do. So today, uh, what, we'll, uh, what we'll be covering is, uh, we'll be covering our, um, Uh, this uh, what we call our safety net. These are the questions that we want to answer. So what is the state of our public safety net and why is it important for your family? How do you now deal with family medical emergencies, given that this safety net has huge gaps in it, which you'll hear a little bit more about? What do I need to know about EMS? How do we help loved ones get to the emergency department now that we're coming through the coronavirus crisis and hopefully will not be in a crisis state, but now we've got a very frayed safety net with many gaps. How has COVID impacted law enforcement in addition to the divisive things that have been going on that have really put enormous challenges against the leaders of our law enforcement community? How has COVID impacted our firefighters And then finally, what can good Samaritans do now in this COVID world, and what do we need to be aware of that's critically important? Um, As we develop the documentary that I introduced briefly, First Responders, Best Responders, Out of the Danger Zone, we're applying a lot of the principles that we have learned are extremely valuable to leading high performance, and you'll hear from Dr. Boats, High reliability organizations. And the high performance envelope is really at the intersection of three spheres. Great leadership. And Ann Rhodes, the co-founder of JetBlue and the former leader of the people systems for Southwest Airlines, and on many boards of many of the brands that you would know. See, leaders drive values, values drive behaviors. Behaviors drive performance and the collective behaviors of your organization are its culture. So leaders really are absolutely critical and good leadership skills are fundamental. At that intersection though of the high performance envelope are the best and better practices. What are the evidence-based practices in law enforcement, firefighting, emergency care, and even family care And then finally, what are the technologies that can enable those best or better practices that are led by our great leaders of these organizations? So we'll constantly be coming back to that. I'm really delighted to have not only Jenny Dingman, but we have uh, Dr. Greg Boats, whose uh, dual faculty appointments are at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and, and Stanford Medical School. Chief uh, Bill Adcox, who's not only the chief security officer but also an associate vice president at the University of Texas uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Um, Dr. Christopher Peabody, who is pre-recorded today. They are in such uh, incredible straits right now with the lack of staff to deliver emergency care that he couldn't be on live, but we recorded uh, his discussion today. Charlie Denham will reference uh, will reference the checklist that Dr. Boats uh, had really inspired that we now use with families to help them keep safe throughout the COVID crisis. Um, Dr. Brittany Bartow uh, uh, Owens is a pediatrician, community pediatrician, that's really given us some great insights on how to take care of our young ones. Vicki King is the uh, assistant police chief at the University of Texas MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center, and along with uh, Chief Adcox is one of our real leaders in threat safety science. And we have David Morris, who's a forensic psychologist, as well as a JD, who has great passion for what we can do in this public safety net in law enforcement, firefighters, EMS, and the emergency department. And we'll briefly mention David Bashk, uh, an award-winning educator who worked together with Charlie Denham and Dr. Boats to develop uh, the Family Lifeguard program. So our purpose uh, is to enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers uh, our mission at TMIT and the MedTech by Standard Rescue Care Program is to help save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. Our core values and what we've taught, been taught by Anne Rhodes are they're, they're very critical. What's your DNA of your organization are its core values. And we try to live and breathe integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship. Uh, and uh, we try to live those values. Uh, None of our speakers have anything to disclose. No money has been received from pharmaceutical or device companies in the healthcare industry, and we won't be discussing any products uh, 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 or uh, influence there. Uh, you can go to go back to uh, our website to watch more of the content that we'll continually update uh, at, at uh, www.medtechglobal.org. Uh, and uh, you can watch uh, videos. We uh, Every month, we update the progress report of uh, the work that we've been doing in many areas who we'll discuss uh, right now. And I won't cover those, uh, however, through this community of practice. So feel free to go and watch that videotape. You know, we've, we've really been through a tough time. Uh, the variant evolution has really thrown us a lot of curveballs. I like to think about what what, uh, Michael Osterholm, uh, who is uh, at the University of Minnesota, one of our leading epidemiologists who's been right on all the way through the process is we have to be humble. And although we hope that we won't have any more surges, we really need to recognize that we can have a lot of curveballs uh, from uh, from the virus, and it's by no means over. However, today we're going to be talking about our stressed safety net, public safety net, uh, as a result of that. So you can go to our website, and on the left side uh, you see on this slide, uh, you, we, we post all of our 90-minute programs, and you can uh, go ahead and watch those, but there's an individual page where we've broken up these uh, talks that we've been given so that people can not eat the whole meal but actually have a bite here and there, and we try to update those uh, continuously because the science is just changing uh, uh, constantly. So about three years ago, before the COVID crisis hit, uh, Chief Adcock and I, and with the support of Vicki King and, and with uh, uh, Dr. Boats and leaders from multiple organizations, including Mayo Clinic, and you see on the lower left-hand corner, uh, Thomas Seltner, the former health minister of Switzerland, we focused on what we call emerging threats in the threat safety science area. What should be keeping us up at night or what are keeping us up at night? Interestingly, uh, many of these organizations have joined us to kind of focus on many of the areas, some of them visible, some of them invisible to us. Many of us keep being kept up at night focusing on those. Interestingly, readiness for epidemics was one of them that that we recognize with more than 200 being tracked a year by WHO. We know that this is a, a, a critical issue. However, there are other topics and we cover these in in the series of webinars that we undertake and we'll keep reminding ourselves throughout this program that we're talking to you who are families and family leaders of essential critical workers of our major medical centers and the 17 industry sectors that Homeland Security has defined as essential infrastructure. But just as an FYI, we also address healthcare employee fraud, patient fraud, and a number of areas. So TMIT is is composed of more than 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities. Uh, How this evolved was we started this nonprofit 37 years ago, uh, and uh, it grew through our work with the LeapFrog Group, the National Quality uh, Forum, uh, uh, CMS, a number of the federal agencies in helping. And CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, who pay the bills for Medicare, for those of you who have family members that are older than 65. And over the years, these hospitals participated in many of our communities of practice to get better. Um, What happened was that we've collected the most wonderful group of dedicated experts in clinical, operational, financial, law enforcement, uh, biomedical engineering, many, many areas of healthcare, uh, and many nonprofits, and and many uh, technology leaders. We have over 500 subject matter experts that serve our community. However, this community of practice has now about 130 subject matter experts, who those of you who have watched before with us, you'll see many of them uh, uh, here. We started with 60, it's grown to 130, and you can see that there are contributions from the Discovery Channel documentaries that we have produced, and a number of noteworthy leaders. You see Bill George, a former CEO of Medtronic, Medtronic, Uh, uh, EMTs, college students, but also some of our, our top leaders in healthcare. My dear friend and partner uh, at Harvard, Professor Christensen, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great and Built to Last, and a number of great books, and Jim Bayesian, even an astronaut who uh, uh, led patient safety for the Veterans Administration Hospital. We undertook a study of over 1,000 families of essential critical workers focused on readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. And these are just some of the organizations that had participated with us in this study where we were studying how can we get better educational information to families like yours to help deal with this crisis. Our focus was on head, heart, hands, voice. What do you need to know? what do you need to feel that's your heart because that motivates us to move hands what do we want you to do and voice what can you share with others and we although we won't cover the topics we recommend that you go back and watch some of our programs as we focus on that finally as of this month. We've done uh, 42 90-minute broadcasts and online programs combined uh, for families and for professional caregivers and 22 of these survive and thrive training programs. Uh, You'll see a number of the other activities and you can go back to, to watch our videotapes to see the other activities that we had. I guess most importantly is that we'll continue until the crisis is over and we don't think it's over yet. So we'll continue to update videos on masks and the latest CDC guidelines and a number of things as we go through it. The survive and thrive guide, guide started with uh, coming home safely. And as you can see on uh, this slide, we covered a number of topics and we're looping back today on emergency rescue skills. You see. Uh, you see on the second row, second in from the right, that uh, emergencies uh, are happening continuously. Uh, Our safety net is absolutely stretched, but you'll see a number of other topics that we've covered and we will be covering. Uh, We'll be covering fraud in the COVID ecosystem next month, COVID safe practices. We'll do an update on our thousand uh, household COVID study and finally faith-based COVID leadership in the next three or four months. And hopefully the crisis will be over. We also have a wonderful team of students who and, uh, and young leaders uh, from high schools, colleges, and young singles who are now working in the community that have helped us focus on what can, we can do through our youth and our young people to have impact. So that's enough uh, with our, our in terms of our background. We're right on time now, 50 minutes after the hour. Just want to remind you that we do, uh, and we are focused on helping families understand and deal with a lot of the crises that are going on. Now uh, we always try to cover things that are in the news and we're collaborating with uh, a wonderful professor, a tenured professor at USC film school uh, and uh, we will be working on our documentary with him and actually a learning program for uh, folks to really to apply what we learned from COVID to the next pandemic but they have produced the most wonderful film addressing vaccines it's called team player it was released this week and uh, you can see the link below totally free and it was produced in collaboration with uh los angeles uh, county uh and it it addresses the latest issues on vaccination so i just wanted to give that pitch to you okay so what's the state of our public uh, uh of our our public uh, safety net uh and these multiple players let's kind of address Really, kind of what's going on, Uh, you know. Many of us live our lives, and until we have an emergency or a crisis, until we're burglarized, until a crime is perpetrated against us, we have a fire, we've got to go to the emergency department, or we have to become a good Samaritan. Most of the time, you know, we don't, we we realize, we think that there's a safety net under us, and we hope that there is. Now, this safety net has really been stretched, and what I'm going to do is share, share just a couple of minutes of a clip of a metaphor. Uh, that we will be using. Um, this is a metaphor for the documentary that we'll be using uh, uh, for this, uh, the, the film that uh, I described. So these are some close-up shots. It'll go by pretty quickly. So I thought I'd give you some close-up shots. On the left is somebody that fell through a hole in the safety net of a tra- of performing in front of a live audience and the other is one that was a near miss of the of the safety net and resulted in trauma. And that one of the things is our safety net has not evolved to deal with a lot of the crises we have today. So most of us believe that people are working. Timeless uh, working tirelessly tirelessly to improve and build our public health safety net. However, that's not happening. We have we've lost one in five uh, caregivers. Uh, uh, Chief Adcox and Vicky King will tell you how difficult it is uh, to recruit law enforcement officers. Uh, David Morris will uh, Dr. Morris will be addressing the challenges that we have in terms of g- getting the people in place and hiring the right people training them and promoting them. And most of us think that, you know, there are people working on our community safety net. That's not really the case. Uh, we've got a pretty archaic one, and the COVID challenges have really uh, sh- shown us that our public health safety net's not been very good at all. We're 60th in the world on our effectiveness, and you see this terrible accident of a guy falling through the net. Unfortunately, there are holes in our net, just like you see in that videotape, uh, there are holes in our gaps in our net uh, that uh, that are happening. And as you see this now in slow motion, we kind of put it together for you in slow motion. You could see that there is a hole. The fellow went right through that, and that's what we're having to deal with now: is holes in this in this safety net. Um, and here's the fellow really going through it. So today, what we want to talk about is there are gaps in law enforcement. There are gaps in firefighting there are gaps in our emergency department so what can you do to prevent an accident like this and if you watch this one they missed the safety net why because uh uh you know it wasn't completely under what they're doing here's another one where you've got somebody falling off of the edge of the safety net our safety net has evolved slowly our society has changed Many things are new and I I hope that our speakers will address some of those things. And so not only do we have gaping holes in our safety net, our safety net's not covering all the things that could potentially happen. This is the Walinda family who were performing without a safety net. And so, uh, uh, you know, I know these are traumatic and I didn't want, I didn't show too too many graphic uh, images, but what I wanted you to, to, to realize is that, uh, is that we really do have, uh, have uh, problems with the safety net and it's really important that we recognize that and we kind of know what's going on. Uh, working with uh, Chief Adcox and Vicki King and Dr. Boats, uh, we've identified that there are inside and outside threats, those intrinsic to our family that are put us at greater risk. There may be some uh, conditions that we have in our families that make our inside threats a, a little greater. And the outside threats are those that are in a community. And in COVID, but also with emergencies, uh, the outside threats can have a greater impact. Our goal is to create resilience building and that's, that's really what we're trying to do. But right now, staffing shortages with COVID has, have increased the outside threats, but it's also increased the risk to our families of getting timely care, early diagnosis, and addressing the things that might be intrinsic to your family. What does that mean? You've got to become the chief family officer in your family and kind of address those things. So- how do we deal with the, with the family medical emergencies uh, as we look at the emergency department? And you see now we've got a call out there to really kind of address those graphics. Well, uh, we're really pleased to have uh, uh uh, Dr. Peabody, Dr. Toff, or Christopher Peabody, uh, he's an associate professor of emergency medicine at UCSF School of Medicine, which is a top 10 medical center in the United States. We're blessed to have Chief Adcox and Vicky King from the top cancer center in the United States, and so we've got top 10 folks here to speak. Um, uh I've been uh, I've known uh, Toff Peabody since he was a third year medical student. He's now the director of the UCSF Acute Care uh, um, uh, Innovation Center and and, uh, absolutely terrific uh, young man, a great leader uh, who's done uh, a great deal of wonderful work, and we see him as as, as really one of our guiding uh, guiding stars of our MedTech program, along with two other chiefs that we have uh, of, uh, of emergency departments, and that's the Mayo Clinic with Dr. Casey Clements, and Dr. Chris Fox of UCI. So let's hear from uh, Toff Peabody regarding um, these issues uh, that pertain to the uh, emergency care. Uh, I worked with Toff to identify the five rights of emergency care. We have the videos that you could, where you can hear him describe him and me describing the, making sure to go to the right provider, getting the right diagnosis and the role you can play, the right treatment, the right discharge and the right follow-up. Uh, in the slide deck, which I won't read, you can read in more detail what these are about and watch the videos because we want to get to our speakers. And so we have three or four slides that kind of give you uh, some of the detail uh, that we've articulated in this program. So let's let's hear from uh, Dr. Peabody today. Uh, And he recorded this yesterday because uh, he is so busy in the emergency department.
3: Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me back. Um, I want to talk to you first about um, kind of the secondary effects that we've been seeing of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, as all of you know, we've been sacrificing um, each and every one of us for the last two years, Um, no more so than in the safety net system of the firefighters, the EMTs, the uh, paramedics, the police officers, Um, your emergency physicians, all the ED staff um, that uh, comes together to take care of folks in emergencies um, have felt this pandemic uh, to their core. And to be honest, and we're not unique among the rest of the country, uh, we can no longer staff our emergency department. And that is because of a number of factors, but one of them and a big one is the burnout that we're all feeling from uh, taking care of patients with COVID-19 and the effects that it just has on our daily lives to go on the front lines day after day uh, during what seems like an endless pandemic. And so uh, our emergency department is uh, now having to close down beds. um, That backs up into the waiting room. Um, The hospital um, cannot staff um, the entire hospital beds. Um, And so we have patients waiting for beds in the emergency department that are admitted to the hospital. This spills back, right? And so um, we have patients in the waiting room and we also have um, ambulances that we have to turn away because we don't have the staffing to be able to receive patients. And so you see this uh, kind of backup throughout the safety net. And not only were um, in the last Omicron surge were Staff members sick and had to um, had to uh, call out for their um, their own safety and the safety of you and your loved ones um, to not spread the virus. But this pandemic has taken a toll, and the toll is embodied in the fact that um, really caring, diligent people uh, can no longer um, serve on the front lines, and so they've had to step back and take a break. Some have left the profession entirely. And so we're seeing those effects now, the secondary effect of the next wave of this pandemic. And so the social safety net is uh, definitely bruised, um, but we're still here for each and every one of you. And so I'd love to talk more about uh, what to do in case of an emergency. My advice to families for given these gaps in the public safety net given our ambulance diversion rates, given our wait times in the emergency rooms, is that folks are here to serve, and we're here to serve our communities, and we wanna provide emergent care 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nights, weekends, and holidays, just like we always have. And we are here for you. Um, And so when you have an emergency that requires the services of the emergency department, uh, please know that we will be there. We will be open. However, please also be patient with us. Please understand the tremendous amount of pressure that we're under. We are all short staffed, there will be more waiting than there has been. Um, And so when you are making the choice of uh, to go to the emergency department, if you have a true emergency, we're going to welcome you with open arms. Uh, But just know that there may be some delays in the care for things that are um, that can wait, Uh, we will get to every single emergency and triage in the best way that we can. Um, So do not delay, Uh, go to the emergency department when you need us, Uh, that's why we're here. Um, But please note, and please be patient um, if you come to the emergency department um, with a a non-emergent condition, uh, because there will be delays. The five rights of emergency care are even more important now with the safety net uh, being so stretched. So um, just as a reminder, uh, we have the right provider, uh, the right diagnosis, the right treatment, the right discharge, and the right follow-up. Many of uh, our states, especially in California, haven't necessarily changed our visitor policies. Um, and that's from a state-mandated uh, policy. These are going to be uh, changed and revised in the, in the coming weeks, I've been told. But it's been really hard to operate with, uh, uh, without visitors in the emergency department. A lot of times uh, your loved one, your family member knows you the best and can advocate for you, especially when you're not feeling well. Um, They're also there to kind of help receive the discharge instructions, the reasons to come back to the emergency department. Um, I really stress in the five rights, understanding that your discharge diagnosis and your discharge instructions may be one of the most important parts of your visit. So you can have an entire emergency department work up and treatment and be released to home. But what happens if things don't get better once you're at home? Uh, those, that's the information that um, you really wanna get a hold of. And it's some of the hardest information to get during COVID um, because you don't have your loved one with you, because um, visitors aren't necessarily allowed in emergency departments. And so how do you uh, prepare for your emergency visit and how uh, can your um, loved one advocate for you um, while you're you're apart, uh, while your loved one's not allowed in the ED. Um, And that may um, be uh, you advocating for your care team to uh, update your family. And so when you're being discharged, understand your discharge instructions, understand uh, your diagnosis, and first and, and and foremost, understand the reasons to come back to the emergency department. The question is, uh, what do families need to do if there's another surge? I think this concept of um, guarded optimism is one that I'd like to emphasize. Um, Guarded optimism meaning, uh, we hope there's not another surge, but we'd be fools not to prepare for one. And so the best thing that you can do to prepare for another surge, which invariably may come, um, is to get vaccinated. Um, ensure your entire family is uh, vaccinated and boosted, uh, to understand uh, the new CDC mask guidelines, uh, to understand what your personal risk uh, tolerance may be, uh, to understand what's a high risk environment for contracting COVID-19. But first and foremost is the vaccinations. Um, These vaccines work um, they're the best tool we have uh, to prepare um, and prevent another surge, like we saw with the Omicron surge. Um, and So I cannot predict the future. Um, I hope that uh, we don't see uh, the deadliness of another variant, um, of another surge like we, we just uh, went through um, with Delta and Omicron. But um, we'd be fools not to prepare for it. Uh, so prepare your family. Make sure you're vaccinated. Make sure you follow the guidelines if another booster is needed. What is your advice regarding the immune compromised family members going forward? Now, I know this group uh, fully understands um, the details of rapid antigen testing um, for specifically immune compromised individuals. Um, And so I won't belabor that point, but What I would like to just emphasize, if you have an immunocompromised family member or you're immunocompromised yourself, uh, remember you're a lot lot higher risk, not only um, uh, you're a lot higher risk of um, complications from COVID-19. And so your precautions are gonna be different from uh, maybe the general population, uh, which uh, if they're vaccinated and boosted, may elect to uh, go to more indoor dining. Um, What I would recommend is that you want to avoid uh, poorly ventilated indoor areas. Um, You may want to continue to mask uh, more and use high-quality masks that I know we've talked about in this program before. Um, And just know that you're at much higher risk still of having complications of COVID-19 and take the appropriate precautions. Anything you can do to prepare for an emergency, uh, will pay off in spades uh, should that time come. And so having a checklist of your medical conditions, um, having a, um, your medical records available, having the emergency contacts um, and your phone updated, especially if you live alone, especially if you're away for college, especially if um, you're a senior or you have a senior in your family that's, uh, that's living alone, uh, that doesn't necessarily have a family member uh, constantly by their side that will be their advocate uh, and, and you know source of information for the emergency team that's going to take care of your loved one. Having all that information in the appropriate place, easily accessible uh, for a lot of us that's uh, updating our um, the medical alert portion of our phone um, which we as emergency um, team members um, know to access that. Um, first and foremost, when someone comes in by ambulance, um, you know, knowing what your goals of care are uh, should you face a life-threatening emergency, um, updating your um, post form, which is um, what your goal, having that goals of care discussion with your um, physician, um, even over a telemedicine visit, um, would be a great place to start. Uh, just understanding what your goals are for care in a life-threatening situation um, really helps out your emergency team. Understanding what your past medical history um, is, understanding what medications you're on, all of these things um, are really, really helpful uh, to providing the right care at the right time uh, for you in the emergency department. Um, and so please, please take these uh, take these steps now. Um, this uh, amount of pre- uh, you know small amount of preparation could help save your life. Why is Good Samaritan uh, care training important? Why is it important that everyone gets CPR AED training? Why is stop the bleeding training, pressure tourniquets, wound packing, knowing how to use pins and knowing how to use Narcan important? We have a phrase in emergency medicine that the emergency care starts in the field, which means that the moment an emergency happens, like a cardiac arrest or someone becomes unresponsive, it's what happens really uh, before you get to the hospital that may actually dictate um, how well you survive or if you survive at all. Um, And so when you are training um, and learning CPR, um, how to use an AED appropriately, uh, how to um, use a tourniquet and stop the bleed, um, or how to revive someone with Narcan, Um, These are all life-saving skills that you, as a a first responder or bystander, um, can use with your family members. Now, I know, Chuck, you and I um, uh, may be on the extremes of this, and um, you were uh, kind enough to help uh, my family uh, get a hold of an AED, um, which I have at my household. Um, and That's because um, we have a lot more family members now. I have two young children. Um, and my sister-in-law just moved in to the house next door to us. Um, and so I feel an obligation as a physician um, and to be prepared for, for my family members, should they have a life-threatening cardiac arrest, for example. And so I have an AED. I have a stop the bleed kit. I have a, a lot of first aid supplies uh, that are in our household. Um, we're starting to teach other family members how to use these, um, how to do CPR. Um, how to use a tourniquet appropriately um, and how to uh, revive folks um, with an EpiPen uh, should they get anaphylaxis or um, with uh, Narcan um, should there be uh, an overdose, um, an unintentional overdose in our community. Um, In San Francisco, where I work as an emergency physician, uh, we've had more deaths from fentanyl overdoses than we have in the from COVID-19. So let me rephrase that. There's been more deaths from opioid overdoses than we've had from COVID in our city during the last two years. And so Narcan saves lives, and we've saved a numerous amount of lives with the reversal agent for opioid overdoses. Um, This is something that we should all learn how to do. It's something we should all carry in our cars if we can. Um, And it's something that we can Um, Help um, and save a life uh, with that first response, that golden minute, you know, of what what do we do uh, right when we notice an emergency? It's call 911, um, assess the situation, um, know how to do CPR, know how to use an AED, know how to use the Stop the Bleed Kit, uh, know how to use an EpiPen, know how to use Narcan for reversal. Um, Those are great steps, and I'm so proud that you guys are, learning this and and Chuck, it's amazing that your organization is providing these um, resources and trainings for free um, and uh, getting getting certified um, and getting uh, the right tools in households uh, so that you guys can be leaders um, in an emergency. And so we thank you for that.
1: So we're so appreciative of, uh, of uh, uh, Dr. Peabody and just, uh, we, don't, we wanna get to our great speakers. However, go to the slides and read them carefully about the five rights uh, that he covered. We provide them in more detail and we've got videos that cover them as well. And this can really help your family uh, with what you need to do. Uh, it's now a real pleasure to I- introduce uh, Dr. Brittany Bartow Owens. I've known her since she was a little girl. Uh, she's now a community uh, community pediatrician. She has provided terrific uh, uh, content to us uh, throughout the last 24 months, and uh, she'll just provide a quick, short update as to what we might need to be thinking about it, about our children and emergencies. and And those of many of us have younger kids. Many of us have older kids that are taking care of younger kids. Brittany, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. You've just been just a godsend to us to help us understand in the community what we need to know about pediatrics and how to take care of our families. Um, First off, with this stretched safety net, uh, what do families need to know about getting their children to the emergency department and seeking emergency care?
2: So I I think the first thing to recognize is You know the emergency rooms are stretched thin but you still have your pediatric office to to ask questions to as well so whenever you're concerned that your child may need to go to the emergency room call your doctor's office and let them triage and help you a lot of the time parents think that kids need to be in the er when they actually don't so they you know use your office as a way to avoid that er if you really don't need to go and to provide you with good care for your child
1: Fantastic, what a great tip. That's a fantastic tip. If they do need to go to the emergency department, what do we need to know about it now, post COVID and post Omicron? Hopefully we won't get another surge, but we might, but we know that the emergency departments are really stretched. What do we need to know about taking our child to uh, the emergency department?
2: So there will be, for non-emergent emergency room visits, that, that's kind of a funny phrase, but for ones that don't need immediate care, there aren't as many nurses and they are more stretched thin. So just having patients, If your child has, you know, need stitches on their forehead, recognizing that the nurses are working as hard as they can and allowing them the space to, to care for your child and not, you know, not being angry with them for taking a long time. Um, yeah. Aside from that, it should hopefully be the same care it just may take a little longer for those non-emergent cases recognizing that you're probably waiting because another child needs that immediate care and you would want that same care if it were your child then
1: so we've developed a tool from the original sbar tool which was situation background assessment and recommendation which was a tool that nurses used to teach, to help communicate emergencies to doctors started out in OB and and mm-hmm. Kaiser had started. I wrote an article about it. And then we wrote uh, an article about SBAR for patients where we say, here's the situation. Here's the background. Here's what my assessment as a parent is. And here's my request. Is that a reasonable framework to 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 organize your thinking? Because there's it's so hard to now communicate and everybody's so stretched.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to organize like how you're trying to present things to other people. That's great.
1: Brittany, what are the biggest myths that you have to dispel regarding this whole COVID situation and vaccines and 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 taking care of our families?
2: Right. So there there were a couple pieces of misinformation that came out pretty early on the vaccine that I think made parents reluctant to get it. Um first that especially for all of these young girls, a lot of them just about to go through puberty, people had heard that there was infertility associated with the vaccine um there are a couple you know there's no plausible um way for that to happen there are you know in every vaccine we've never had any issues with infertility and it's something that's in your body for such a short period of time that it it doesn't really make any sense Um, they actually did a study on it because there was so much misinformation about it to try to relieve people's fear about it and they found that in a group of people that were trying to get pregnant, um, there was no difference whether or not they had the COVID vaccine and having a successful pregnancy, they actually found that COVID made men temporarily infertile. So COVID vaccine didn't seem to cause any issues, the COVID infection itself did. Um, that's a big one that I get. Some people so also do want to get there's,
1: back. A, there's a risk to unborn children, there's a risk to moms and there's risk to potential dads from COVID and mm-hmm. not a risk to all three with the vaccine, fair statement, with the mRNA vaccine? Correct. Okay, So,
2: um, Other people had hesitation about it being, you know, not needed because children have mild disease. But if you look at, you know, the vaccines that we're giving children that are mandated throughout the country, the number of deaths per year from, for example, the measles prior to the measles vaccine was a lot lower than for COVID. Um, and you know, just for COVID itself, maybe sixty-six kids would die a year. Um, that doesn't even include the amount of mortality and morbidity that was caused by that child also spreading it. So the idea behind a lot of these childhood vaccines is to one protect the child and two protect the population, and that's what we're trying to do with the COVID vaccine as well. Um, so-, so children, sh- they need it, um, and they do get sick, and it's also to protect the population.
1: Great. And so masks, the new guidelines about masks, what are you telling parents?
2: So I think it's good that the CDC, you know, created a framework for decreasing masking in the community and getting us like less less in a pandemic mode. So I'm very excited that they did that and that they have real metrics like, you know, cases per hundred thousand They take into account hospitalizations and percentage of hospital beds. I think that's all really nice. Um, so I think in general, it will allow us to be more comfortable unmasking. That being said, I have the cases per hundred thousand that they use is a lot higher than they previously used, not based on any data that they shared with the population. So I think it's good when you're having low cases and low hospitalizations to be more comfortable without a mask. I think I would probably want to mask indoors at a lower to a lower threshold than the CDC is recommending right now. So but.
1: basically what you're saying to our families is, you'd be more likely, as as would I, to want to wear a mask because they've been pretty liberal in releasing us from masks. So that, is that a reasonable statement for those of us that understand how mm-hmm. much community immunity there is? And we, we talk about the fact that you really need to look at the community and say, what's the community immunity? If it's high and the infection rate is low and the hospitalization rate is low, it's safer. If the infection rate is higher and the community immunity is lower, Uh, you know, we're going to be a little bit more uh, uh, careful. I'm going to be very careful. Uh, I've got immunocompromised people in my family. I've got a son that's been admitted twice with an overreaction to uh, a virus, uh, really sick one time. And uh, so we're going to be very careful about keeping a very high quality n 95 mask on and avoiding these uh, indoor indoor areas. Uh, well, thank you very much. You've just been really so helpful to our families. I can't thank you enough, uh, Brittany, and you bring some common sense to this very difficult area where there's disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. So you've helped us kind of clarify the, the murky waters.
2: Tori, right. You're welcome.
1: Take care. <laughs> So, so that's the latest from uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Barto. We have a slide covering these concepts of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. If you want to look at a framework, this is a great framework. We won't go into it today. What do we need to know about EMS? Well, uh, the issue is that there is stretched as badly as what we hear from uh, what we heard from Dr. Uh, from Dr. Uh, Peabody. Uh, and I, what I, I want to make sure that our live speakers get a chance uh, for enough time to speak. We'll loop back with uh, Dr. Boats uh, regarding a statement regarding uh, the EMS. But enough said is is that they're experiencing the same thing that you heard from Dr. Peabody. We've had a huge number of caregiver deaths, and now they're not even counting them. Uh, uh, so many websites uh, have uh, ha- have not been counting them anymore. And we have so we have one in five healthcare workers that have left. Uh, Healthcare. Uh, however, we've had an enormous number of deaths, an enormous number of people with long COVID who've not been able to go back to work. So the combination of those two, those two things have really, really hurt us in terms of um, EMS coverage. So it's important to realize if you're in a metropolitan city, EMS will take longer to get to you, so the be, the more prepared you are to take care of a loved one and get them to the get them to emergency, um, uh, the better. Be aware you might they might be sitting in the parking lot of the hospital waiting to be seen, or they might not be able to go to your hospital because of diversion, as as you've seen. We've covered in prior webinars, which we won't cover today that there are skills that you can can maintain to make sure when you're taking somebody to the emergency department, uh, having a pulse oximeter at home and being able to manage it, masking up, and then making sure that you've got good ventilation in the car when you go to the emergency department. And then as Dr. Peabody had said, after discharge, Making sure you have everything you need and knowing what the discharge precautions are, getting the proper medications and the proper equipment at home, and being aware of the fact that somebody's going to have to do that if people are feeling sick. So, so we're, we're moving now to talk about law enforcement and what's important to all of our families. Uh, it's interesting to know that, um, that, that at the last count, we had five times as many police officers dying from COVID as from gunfire, which is pretty amazing. We're going to ask uh, uh, Vicki King, who's the assistant chief of police for Converged Threats and Risk Protection and Investigations at MD Anderson Cancer Center and the University of Texas uh, uh, Health Science Center, speak together with Chief Adcox. Uh, chief is uh, is the uh, is a vice president as well as a chief of police uh, for the University of Texas uh, at Houston uh, that is providing the protection for. Uh, uh, and and really the major player at Texas Medical Center uh, and who we work with on a daily basis a co-founder of the MedTAC program uh, a co-founder of our Emerging Threat uh, program for top medical centers and we're going to ask them to kind of give you a quick snapshot of what's going on in the police and and uh, and in law enforcement. Uh, And then what you really kind of need to know and realize as you think about your family, but think broader of your community and why it's so important that we not defund our police and our and our public safety net, but actually fund the right players and the best players. So uh, I'm going to stop sharing uh, right now and ask uh, uh, Vicki King uh, to speak uh, and kick off. Uh, Vicki has also been the assistant chief of police in Houston and had uh, all of the departments uh, reporting to her, uh, a wonderful and thoughtful, uh, I, I believe, uh, academician in this space and somebody who uh, has always been a great speaker for our programs. Vicki, would you uh, kick things off?
0: Thank you, Chuck. I will. I'm going to share my screen. And uh, Bill and I have decided that we're just going to team teach um, this little uh, session. And um, each one of us will take a a part of the presentation if that works for for this group. So uh, I'm going to let my... uh, my compatriot here and a friend and mentor, Bill Adcox, uh, start. Uh, first of all, can you see our screen? Yes, ma'am. All right. So Bill, Vicky. take us off.
4: Well, thank you very much, Vicki. And uh, thank you, Dr. Denman, Denham and everyone that's on the program today. Um, and most of you are, uh, we're gonna try to kind of give some context to what we're talking about here in terms of uh, this erosion of police services and the safety net public safety net. Most of you are fully aware of the, of the tremendous increase in violent crime in our communities, um, but you may not be aware that we're really faced with uh, what could be called a perfect storm. Um, not, that perfect storm is not only crime, but it's the actual erosion, erosion uh, or shrinking of that public safety net. So what Vicki and I are going to do is we're going to walk you through a, a, a data-driven overview of what we're talking about, uh, we're going to highlight the healthcare issues that are in play uh, during uh, Om- uh, Omicron or the pandemic and and, and this uh, crime increase, and and then we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about the impact, and then real briefly talk about some areas of improvement or some solutions perhaps that we can look at. Uh, so, uh, if we go to the next slide, Vicky, and, and if you can go from there.
0: All right. Thank you. Well, we all know that uh, COVID-19 turned our world upside down. When we start to look at uh, the impact of COVID on health care and its relationship to law enforcement, we know that uh, our healthcare communities are target-rich environments. And pre-COVID, there was workplace violence that was raging, especially in our emergency departments, where effective violence that that momentary rage sometimes can spill over into a violent event. Um, we were also cognizant of uh, cyber attacks, uh, ransomware, um, the denial of service that was occurring and data breaches. Those were things that we were combating at an institutional level to try and build up our firewalls and protect our, our PHI and our communities. Uh, we also were aware of insider threats, uh, drug diversion patient safety, PHI breaches, theft of intellectual property, uh, were, those were framed in terms of sometimes careless acts by our um, community of care, uh, individual actors, and then there were those coordinated malicious actors that uh, tried to harvest uh, the very lucrative um, PHI information that was available in our hospital Uh, IT systems. And then, of course, uh, theft and fraud, uh, grant research fraud, Medicare insurance fraud, and criminal enterprises trying to um, garner prescription drugs for illicit use. Those were already in our pre-COVID threats that were targeting our healthcare institutions, but there was another layer post-COVID that began to surge up. Workplace violence um, in the emergency rooms began to take a different turn. You had uh, those who opposed vaccines. You had a a politicization of treatments and types of treatments. Um, Domestic violence, there was much more domestic violence presented in our emergency departments and even among our staff or victims. And sometimes those uh, incidents would spill over into the workplace, Uh, but it was, what we're seeing is increased volatility by patients. Just because you become ill, doesn't mean that the world's problems that you had on uh, at home, uh, you didn't bring those with you. And when you're in that high stress environment, clearly it's going to put you closer to uh, an effective uh, response, a violent response to uh, frustrations, wait times, some of the other stressors that you may see in the healthcare environment. Um, the cyber attacks uh, certainly in today's world, with uh, the political, uh, geopolitical situation with the Ukraine, cyber attacks are real. Um, you can have state-sponsored uh, actors, but you also have uh, predators and these individual hackers who come in, and they're targeting. We saw a gigantic influx of. Uh, False and fraudulent uh, workers' compensation claims, as well as um, you know the uh, E-E- the unemployment claims that were hitting many of our healthcare institutions, malware, trojans, and and this is exacerbated by the fact that many of our administrative staff were sent to remote work locations, so they were no longer within the protection of the firewalls and in the at home environment. Um, sometimes they were a little more careless with our IT and, and what uh, emails they clicked on. So that added a whole new layer of complexity. Certainly the insider threat, the theft of PPE began. PPE at one time was abundant. It was something that you didn't think about uh, protecting. And then it became our most treasured commodity when uh, the supply chain was disrupted at the beginning of the pandemic and people were desperate to protect themselves and their families, there just weren't sufficient stores to meet the needs. You saw many of our healthcare uh, workers having to improvise or reuse, recycle uh, PPE, which certainly uh, doesn't work in a, um, to try and uh, keep yourself safe from communicable diseases and other pathogens. And then theft and fraud, uh, the the black market for PPE and supplies, Medicare, insurance frauds, COVID testing, and all these treatment schemes that went out there. Um, the snake oil salesmen were in full force uh, when we had this. And so you have those COVID threats. Now you overlay the criminal justice system, the environmental impact. So we, we saw court delays. Uh, Because they couldn't hold court and and it took a while to catch up with the Zoom and and allow the laws to evolve to to meet this new remote uh, meetings on motions. We also saw compassionate release of jail defenders, which uh, from a compassion standpoint, uh, certainly tugs at the heartstrings, but uh, it was indiscriminate and a blanket response rather than allowing those uh, offenders that represented the least uh, threat to society. It was, it was an all or nothing uh, approach. But there was also a reduction in new jail admissions. You saw district attorneys not prosecuting certain types of crimes. You saw uh, no um, bail uh, or low bail that uh, was out that allowed people to get out. And then you saw something that was really new that people who committed subsequent violations of their bail or subsequent crimes while out on bail were continually granted new bail. So those things uh, were, were extremely problematic in combating um, the predatory acts of uh, a very slim uh, percentage of our population. Um, From a law enforcement standpoint, you saw social distancing practices. It's very difficult to to interact with the public well when you're trying to keep that uh, uh, personal safety. uh, And especially when there wasn't sufficient PPE to go around with our law enforcement communities. Uh, You saw a shift to taking phone reports rather than in-person reports and evidence collection at scenes, evaluation of scenes. Uh, by law enforcement. Uh, And then you saw a reduction in the arrest of offenders. Um, There was fewer proactive policing measures that were taking place, including traffic stops, suspicious person stops, um, Terry stops. Those things all contributed to this tsunami that we see um, and a a real Uh, lessening our our erosion of our safety net in the criminal justice system.
4: Bill? So then on on May 25th of 2020, right during the uh, pandemic, we had this uh, horrible event where Mr. George uh, Floyd was murdered uh, by uh, four uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, police officers. Um, They knelt on his neck until he, he died um, what a what a what a horrendous and tragic event, but it 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 really really ignited communities across the United States. Uh, this this uh, police brutality and their and, and uh, social injustice, racial injustice, uh, really really took off, and you saw widespread uh, uh, actions against the uh, policing and uh, lots of pushback, and. As Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. uh, has stated in his letter from the Birmingham jail in uh, 1963, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Those words have never, never uh, been more true than they are during this event. And throughout uh, what's happened post that event. Uh, So this really ignited this whole whole movement um, and uh, had us all have to take a really close and justified look at uh, at policing. Unfortunately, there are are some uh, unavoidable impacts as well as uh, some some things that can happen that, that were not thought of. And this is, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that, but the, but it was really, really a, a horrible thing where the police officers are supposed to be the guardian of peace. They're supposed to be the facilitators of justice. Uh, and they're supposed to be the protectors of the vulnerable. And so they had to go back and, and really revisit this and, and, uh, you know, you go from May 25th of 2020 to where we're all to where we are today. Uh, next slide.
0: So As calls to defund the police and abolish the police began to grow around the country, um, Gallup initiated a a panel, and and I think that this was extremely uh, illuminating. Um, Our uh, Black Americans uh, were surveyed, and they said that that they wanted the same or increased levels of police presence in their neighborhood. So the slogan of defund the police and abolish the police. Um, That's a great uh, uh, rallying cry, if you will. But in reality, there was a recognition that 81% wanted Mm -hmm. the police to stay or increase in their neighborhoods. Uh, Just 19% of Black Americans surveyed in this poll want police to spend less time in their neighborhoods. And these figures are fairly consistent, and they align with the earlier surveys that found that, 22% of Black Americans, um, uh, only 22% wanted to get rid of the police or abolish the police uh, as we know them. So serving the community was what they want. Uh, All Americans, Black, White, Hispanic, Asian, we all want to live in safe communities. Uh, No one wants to be oppressed. No one wants to be abused. They want to feel safe and secure in their communities. And so some of the fringe elements that were calling for the defunding or the abolishment of police, it, that may sound great on a placard, but uh, the unintended consequences of that are severe. Unfortunately, some of the community politicians took it, uh, took it to heart and the defund the police movement can see to correspond with a rapid rise in crime. FBI data shows an unprecedented spike in murders across the nation in 2020. Now we don't have the FBI data for 2021. We can see the trend data uh, that 2021 is even going to exceed the levels of 2020. So as this uh, mantra began to cross the nation, the, the reduction and erosion of police services had a very visceral effect in the communities. Blood was shed and pe- and lives were lost because police were not there. And if you want to break it down into our urban environments, the FBI actually looks and and and, and tracks this data by city. And you can see, is your city on this list? What was the increase from twenty nineteen to 2020? What occurred during this abolish the police movement? uh, And what does the data show us uh, that was the impact of of this rhetoric that was pushed forward? We can also look at the number of arrests. Uh, Police began to back, back, pull back. Um, You saw more retirements than ever before. Uh, You saw uh, uh, police officers leaving the profession More and more, and in greater numbers, and leaving those communities. And what that resulted in was unsolved crime. Arrests did not occur. And what we forget to think about are all those untold victims and their families who were left in the wake, suffering with no recourse. And if a predator is allowed to escape, The result is that that predator is not going to stop until there's a consequence with their actions. And so crime is is moving up and arrests are moving down. And, you know, the officers pull back. The the police officers also suffered a tremendous burden um, with uh, assaults of police officers, unprecedentedly large assaults. These are just the deaths. This is not just the number of police officers who were attacked during this period, because the numbers are still very, very in flux. But you can see there was a 58.7% increase in murders of police officers while on the job protecting our cities. That number is just uh, astounding. And for myself, who has a daughter and a son-in-law who are also police officers, as a parent, my heart is just in anguish uh, when we see these happening within our, team, within our communities. So Bill's gonna walk us through uh, kind of the, the full breadth of, of the stressors on policing. Bill?
4: Yeah, yes. So, so there's, there's a multitude of things that are going on uh, that are causing um, uh, the nation's uh, shortage in uh, police staffing. Uh, obviously the COVID-19 uh, issues come into play. We talked about that. The anti-police rhetoric uh, is, 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 is in play. You're seeing surging, surging workloads uh, on top of everything else. Um, one of the key issues is they talk about abolishing protections. Uh, they talk about end of uh, qualified immunity. However, you need to put that into context. Uh, any police officer that, that, that's conducted or is involved in wrongdoing, can be prosecuted. Um, this this uh, uh, qualified immunity is 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 a is a, is a court uh, ruling that 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 talks about any and all government workers. It's the same exact qualified immunity for teachers, sanitation workers, parks and recreation attendants. You name it; it's all together. And what they're talking about when they talk about abolishing or ending qualified immunity, quite candidly. Uh, It is not correct in the way that that the proponents are talking about it. And it really needs to be looked at in terms of what what the real meaning of qualified immunity is across the board. Now, there could be some unintended consequences also uh, in in doing so. It opens up, uh, obviously, it opens up our our cities and our counties to some very, very serious uh, uh, litigation, as well as as, um, uh, police officers, uh, in the profession whether or not they feel that they' that they'll be supported or better better yet uh, have the protections for, for lawfully doing their jobs obviously if, if a police officer does something unlawful uh, no one is no one should be held more accountable than a, than, a, than, a, than a police officer that does wrong there's no doubt about it there's increased dangers with police officers. Vicky talked about the last slide where there's 58.7 percent increase just in the murders of police officers from 20. Uh, 20 to, or excuse me, 2019 to 2020. Um, and then there's uh, the reduced accountability we talked about in terms of, of individuals that are committing crimes in our communities uh, for a multitude of reasons, uh, they're there. So what you're seeing here is just, just a slide that really kind of talks about it. Um, and, and frankly, there is a, there's a tremendous reduction in, in the labor pool for people that would want to become police officers. Uh, we're seeing a tremendous reduction in the amount of people that even would ever apply to be police officers. And that's a growing trend. And and I I believe Dr. Morris should probably talk more to that. Uh, Next slide.
0: So when you uh, look at what that means for our communities, the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police did a Uh, 2021 survey. And these were the results. They found that 78% of agencies reported difficulty in recruiting qualified candidates. Um, They just couldn't uh, cut through the rhetoric uh, to get people interested in applying for those jobs. Uh, 65% reported having too few candidates applying to be law enforcement officers. This is a complete turnaround from when I applied, and there you had one at, for one open position. You could have 100 to 150 applicants for that one job. Um, there were 75% of agencies reported recruiting more is more difficult today than it was five years ago. And, and think about all the stressors. Would you ask or would you want your children uh, or your family members going into this profession? Um, The family support is not there anymore that uh, really drives our recruits to choose a a career in policing. Uh, Fifty percent of the agencies reported having to change agency policies in order to increase chances of gaining qualified applicants. Now, uh, that could be something as innocuous as allowing officers to wear beards or have facial hair uh, to something a little bit more concerning. Uh, When it comes to character, uh, thefts, uh, reduction in uh, previous convictions for misdemeanor uh, uh, convictions uh, or driving habits, uh, marijuana or or drug use. Uh, And so when you start to see those in some of the backgrounds, uh, especially when you start talking about theft convictions and things of that nature, that really speaks to character and uh, temptation. Uh, and whether or not that person's going to be able to resist in the workplace. So um, officers talk about it in terms of lowering the standards for hiring um, police officers, and and that is a concern. And then 25% of the agencies reporting uh, having to reduce or eliminate certain agency services. And this means units, positions, uh, because of staffing difficulties. We've seen it here in the Houston area. We saw it in Austin, probably in in. The most profound was back in November of last year, the Austin Police Department announced that they would no longer send officers to non-emergency calls. And so that means if your business or your home was broken into, they were actually telling the citizens to document your own um, break in, preserve your own evidence and collect your own evidence. Well, what does that mean? How do you submit it? How do you get it analyzed? How do you have the the case investigated? And how do you hold someone accountable if a police officer hasn't conducted an investigation? So those are the reductions in erosion and services. If if you're asking citizens to investigate their own crimes and you're only gonna be there if uh, blood is running in the streets, then um, there's going to be an even greater crisis of confidence in our law enforcement profession.
4: So, although we, what we can talk about is how policing is, in fact, at a tipping point, uh, we really, really want to change the narrative uh, through talking about accountability and professionalism measures. We're talking about going back in and, and repairing the, uh, the safety net and, and making it stronger. Now, this is not an all inclusive list, but these are some things that, you know, on the, on the really on the upside, on the positive that needs to be done and can be done. You know, first and foremost, the, 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 really the foundation about policing today is around hiring and selection of, of, of your employees. And they really need to be reflective of the community. One of them is diversity, whether it's, whether it's, it's, it's just truly reflective of your community, whether it's, it, it's, it's individuals that, that happen to be persons of colors, uh, p- people that happen to be white, people that, that happen to be from, from different sexual orientations, individuals that, that are across across the, the spectrum, we're talking about overall diversity that reflects the community that, you, that you've uh, sworn to serve. In addition to that, you need to make sure that you have, uh, you're, you, you really truly need to push really heavily for having more women in policing, uh, and, and because really 12% of policing today, 12 to 13% across the nation is women. And that is horrible, that is ridiculous and you really, really need to have more women in policing. And there's many, many studies of why that is critical. And then a real critical component is, is when you get that diverse workforce to come in and want to be police officers, you've got to look at the character issue. You have to have an ability to screen individuals, making sure they're of solid, good character, that they aren't racist, um, that they, that they uh, Mickey, does something happen to the screen? That they are not racist, and that they that they that they that they are not thieves, that they are not sexual predators, uh, and that they are not members of of extreme groups, uh, extremist groups uh, uh, of all types that are just horrible and don't reflect what it, what this great country represents. That's a critical critical component. Um, we need to have early warning systems in place, and very importantly, we need values-driven corrective action uh, processes. Quite candidly, um, we've we tried to focus too much in policing on the conduct of the officers, but we really need to look at their overall behavior and making sure they're comporting themselves every day with the values that the community demands and expects and is, and is absolutely necessary to do the job. And you need to have policies in place that allow you to hold them accountable to that. And again, you're talking about development. You're talking about making sure that they can do that. The next important, one of the next important component, obviously, is constant development of your personnel. You get the right people in the front door. You get the right development. You're going to get the right people that you can promote. You've got to have the best promotional systems in, in the country. That I'm going to leave to Dr. Morris, because I don't know anybody in the country that's better at doing that and doing it right than Dr. Morris. And then you must have an ability to retain uh, the competent employees, the best employees, and particularly particularly developing and, and retaining leaders of great character and that's going to be really 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 strong Uh, accreditation and oversight less than six percent of the nation's police departments are accredited and and that is a set of standards accreditation in of itself is not the answer but it is a part of the answer and it is giving you the standards and it is helping to develop a foundation and then having oversight of police organization listen you know you you really need to be as a community you need to be part of your police departments you need to be uh, part of the the the, uh, the oversight of the police departments and having these checks and balances in place at all times, uh, that is going to be critical to have that oversight of those policing organizations. And frankly, this is not popular in a lot of police agencies. But I but I will tell you that police unions need to be redirected and focused on areas of safety and compensation, things of those natures that makes the workplace better. But management needs to have a stronger ability and retain authority over work assignments, the types of things that they're gonna be asking these officers to do, as well as a strong ability to take corrective action as, as quickly and as, and as appropriately as possible, certainly with, 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 with due process, but you've got to be able to, as a manager, take the necessary action uh, to, to get it done. And then uh, I'll, I'll let Vicki uh, take the next bullet. Right, um, and
0: when we talk about building social capital with our community, um, you create that transparency and inclusion with your community stakeholders when those interactions are when you're not in crisis. Building those social capital, there are a number of really good programs that I've uh, been a part of throughout my career. Um, but it is when you reach out and you make those connections with school boards, with PTAs, with um, sporting uh, groups, uh, our, our youth sports groups, when you're uh, constantly contributing uh, to uh, our NAACP, our LULACs, our uh, ACLU's, when you're connected with those individuals and you hear and you listen and you have those informal exchanges every day, every day you're building those relationships. When things go in crisis and they know that they can pick up the phone and call you, and that you're going to tell them the straight scoop, that you're going to tell them if your officer is messed up, hey, look, we're, we've got some concerns here and we're going to look into them. Uh, they'll stand with you when you have those um, events where an officer did not live up to our community values. And they know that you're going to take strong corrective action to make sure that your officers represent our Constitution. We value the civil liberties of those we serve, and that we're here as guardians and protectors, not as enforcers. Uh, we also want to direct those resources to community needs and priorities. If your community is uh, not concerned about rigid traffic enforcement uh, on the on the highways, and you're, you've donated, you've dedicated most of your resources to that. Uh, and they see you stopping traffic, and they believe it's a revenue generator rather than a a uh, protection uh, strategy, um, then you're gonna lose credibility. I'm not saying that traffic enforcement isn't important, it is, but what I'm saying is that the resources have to be commensurate with the protection of the community. And you can't listen to community needs and issues If you're walled off and you don't have those informal and you don't go to them, they're not going to come to you. You have to meet them in their community, in their environment, and listen. And if they know that you're going to listen and they know that you're going to respond, you're going to build that social capital that you need uh, to gain the, the respect of the community and the trust is the most important thing. We have to rebuild trust. When we rebuild trust and we recruit our next generation of police officers from that community and they know that we hold those values true, then we're going to work out of this problem. There will not be calls to defund you. There will be calls to support you. And those are the things that we're trying to build in our community as we move forward. So, Bill, I'm going to let you see if there's any uh, final questions. We're going to move
1: right to uh, to uh, Dr. Morris because we're a little short on time. So we'll move right uh, directly to him. And uh, so if you can stop sharing, Vicky, then I will share and uh, we'll have Dr. Morris uh, uh, bring us home. And uh, for those that are watching our extended program, we will be hearing from Dr. Cox as well, or Dr. Fox, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Uh, Dr. Boats as well. And uh, what we'd like to do is, is have uh, uh, Dr. David Morris now, and I'll be advancing slides for him. He's a, f- a forensic psychologist, uh, an attorney, an expert advisor to public safety organizations on performance improvement, uh, his bio is on our website, which is very impressive, as are uh, both Bill and, and Vicki's. And Bill and Vicki, thank you so much for really giving us a comprehensive view of what where the gaps are and why our, our law enforcement safety net is so important. David, would you like to kick it off here? David, are you there? Uh, if you're on mute, unmute. Oh, I'm
5: sorry, that was the most popular expression in 2020. I should have apologized for that. Here all right, go. so I am uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Denham. I enjoyed listening to Chief King and Chief Adcox and all the others on the issues that we're facing in this safety net. So I am the CEO and president of a small firm that actually provides their mission is to, their primary mission is to help build a stronger and more diverse public safety. And we do this all over the country, from from California to New England to to Florida and everything in between, over 260 agencies. Uh, I'm proud to be able to provide that service. But what I've learned along the way is that the old way that we used to test won't work anymore. And this is what everyone needs to remember when they're engaged in selecting, is that Diversity is key in all your personnel decisions. Public safety is the face of government. If people do not see themselves represented in that public safety, then it is a psychological certainty that that government is courting dissension from those people. I've seen that all over the world. I've seen it in our own country, we all have. So there's where the challenge is. We wanna increase and strengthen public safety using good testing procedures and good assessment procedures. And we wanna do that so that in fact, not only do we increase the quality, but we also increase diversity. So that's gonna take a, a, a challenge uh, and it's gonna challenge the traditional way of actually using uh, assessments. So Chuck, you can give me that next slide. All right, so in the face of emergency, public safety is who we call they're the people that come to help us and so they're essential it's really they're facing numerous challenges and we've got to adapt to these new challenges and so we're up to the challenge we're there we're adapting and we're actually achieving the diversity and increased quality under some really different uh, dynamics that we're working with uh so the next slide please so when chief king was talking about when she was uh when she first applied, that it would be like 100 candidates for every one selected. So if you look at this diagram, there's a few blue dots in there. Most of them are red dots. The blue dots are people that will be successful in public safety. Our challenge is to find them. The old traditional way of testing once every two years, we're trying to find those blue dots. That's not gonna work because public safety like every other element of human resources, is a flowing river out there. Those dots are here today, but if you wait till tomorrow, those dots will be diminished, they will no longer be there. So next slide. So you've got to imagine that you're trying to catch and identify these blue dots among the massive red dots, because not everyone is able to serve. Research shows that about 70% of all the people who even want to be, which as chief king has said it has really diminished a lot but this but you've got to identify not only among the people that want to be but those that can be in those true blue dots so you've got to imagine yourself as a fisherman and if, or fisher person i should say so if you throw that net out there today that's good but if you wait a year from now the dots that were there and the good people were there a year ago won't be there anymore so you've got to you've got to You've got to adapt your testing. As Chief Adcock says, you've got to look at character. You've got to look at the way you do the testing. We've been able to increase the diversity of African-Americans in a public safety position by 208%, not by lowering the quality, by, by changing the metrics that we used. We've been able to increase the, the percent of women in public safety by three times the national average, not by lowering the standards, but by simply changing the way those assessments were worked, So when you're talking about entry level, you've got to focus on the fact that it's a river, not so much true in promotional assessment. I would say promotional procedures, we need to do them more often than we used to. Uh, I'm working with one of the third largest jurisdictions in America, and they did a promotional exam 12 years ago. Oh my goodness, I feel so sorry for these people that joined public safety for a career and yet think about how desperate they are if in fact they don't do well on that promotional exam so we need to see more frequent uh, and on a uh, promotional programs and on a more regular basis they've got to look at just more than a multiple choice test the old standard standard way that hr used to do it has got to change we've got to say we can't have multiple hurdles out there. If you didn't pass this, we're not even gonna look at you. Most of assessments are compensatory. That means they may not have made exactly the best score on this test, but perhaps they're the very best on the other. So you've got to reorganize and rethink the way you're doing those assessments so that you can get the good quality that you're looking for. In fact, even an increased quality and more diversity because both are essential in public safety. So you really want to look at a written test. Okay, that's going to be a good technique of assessing knowledge, but you've got to look at the structured oral, the constructed oral, because we know that, in fact, those are where our best decision makers are. They're able to walk, talk, chew gum all at the same time. They not may not be your very top best multiple choice test taker, but they are your best supervisor of men and women in public safety. So please consider those Uh, changing the way you set the hurdles and changing the way that you set those tests. Uh, Now, while we're a small agency, we are one of the primary providers to most of the major cities in America. And we know that our goal is to push them and get them to adapt to a new way of assessing and selecting people. Also, what Chief Adcock said is so true. We used to think that you've got to be the smartest person in the room to be uh, a good public safety officer. That's not true. You've got to be smart enough. The rest of it is character. What is your commitment to the organization? What is your commitment to serve the people in that community? So character is really important, and you can get to that multiple ways. There are actually multi-choice tests that have been created in the last 20 years, and those multi-choice tests are really good at helping you identify character, but there's no substitute for that uh, background check. Now, what does all this mean to you? It is true that in fact, the number of people applying that wanna be a smaller, but they're still there. We just, our challenge is to find them and we're up to that challenge. But what does this mean to you? A typical family of four, your children, your loved ones. It means that you need the public safety to be there to help you when you need it. So anyway, I wanna thank you all for the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, Chuck, it's always a pleasure. And Vicky, it was good to see you and, and Bill again. I'm just pleased to be a part of it. And it was amazing to listen to everyone uh, provide the information.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Morris. And we are going to uh, wrap up at our 90, about 90 minute level, but we have an extended program with the comments from Dr. Boats regarding the eight leading causes of death for which Good Samaritan care can be addressed. We just wanted to make sure that everyone knows that the firefighters are experiencing the same burnout. They're experiencing attrition. It's a very popular job. But uh, they're all being stretched, especially those that are EMTs and are working uh, uh, that, that are working so diligently. We've had the great opportunity of uh, of working with them in our MedTech program, which I'll, I'll tease just for a moment, and then we'll come back to the folks that we have um, uh, on the left. Are Cub Scouts actually, and th- our Cub Scout group is all grown up, and now they're in the mid-teens. And you see in the upper picture three three firefighters behind them um, working on. Uh, our MedTAC program, which is to bring uh, the skills to Good Samaritans and to work hand in glove with the firefighters, law enforcement, and our emergency departments. And so, uh, what we'll do, what I'd like to do, is go back to Chief Adcox and Vicky King and uh, and uh, Dr. Morris uh, in just a, in just a minute. But what for those that are watching the extended program or want to watch Dr. Boat's kind of address. What we've been doing with our Care University program with, uh, with MedTech, I'll just address the fact that we have a certificate program where we're, t- we're certifying EMTs and we're teaching people to be instructors on Stop the Bleed, many are uh, as well as uh, CPR, and address these eight leading causes of death that you see on your screen here today. I'm just going to kind of move through a little bit more quickly. We have six articles. There'll be a seventh article coming out addressing some of the things you heard Dr. Peabody address uh, as, we, as we talked about those. But, uh, but uh, for those of you that, uh, that stay on for the extended session, you'll hear Dr. Boats address uh, why and post-COVID and now because our safety net has so many gaps Cardiac-arrested CPR, choking and drowning and resuscitation, use of Narcan for opioid overdose, EpiPens and reversal agents uh, uh, that uh, that are, I'm sorry, uh, epinephrine for those that have uh, anaphylaxis, stop the bleed for bleeding, Infection care beyond COVID, because we really are at huge risk now with a lot of pathogens that are in the em- environment. And then transportation uh, injuries and deaths that occur to our children every single day. We have 100 driveovers a week, 60% are drivers that are either their parents or they know, and we have four deaths. And then finally, bullying. So, but what I'd like to do uh, to keep us for those that uh, that are doing their CME training to the ninety minutes is not go uh, too far over and uh, uh, come back to uh, our live speakers today and just have uh, at, and just have uh, Chief Adcox. Um, Thank you for the comprehensive presentation. It sure helps to have you and Vicki share with us uh, uh, why it's so important to fund and to know about our law enforcement. Uh, Would you like to react to what you heard about the other groups? I think we talk a lot uh, about the fact that firefighters, EMS, emergency departments, law enforcement, and our Good Samaritans need to work together. You wanna kind of address why that's so important now post-COVID and as we are getting through this uh, these challenges? Absolutely, thank
4: you very much. I think I'll use the example of when we talked about the spike in murders, um, you know, that, that, that murder rate would be much worse if it wasn't for the fact that we now have bystander care Good Samaritans that would be willing to take and know how to help somebody stop the bleed, uh, uh, give them CPR, whatever the case might be. They have cell phones that we can get locations on them. They don't have to run to a landline anymore and know where it's at. You also have the very best medical equipment. And, and, and when the EMS when the, when the and the firefighters get there, they're so well-trained and some of them even have whole blood and other things. So they're able to take someone to the world's best emergency rooms, trauma one centers, and get people's lives saved. So when you're talking about that entire safety net, it, is, it has got the very best of, of people involved, the best equipment, the best technology, the best leadership and the best practices are in place. That's why more and more lives are being saved that would have never been saved as little as 20 and 30 years ago, but yet our murder rates are, are off the chart. So it tells us that we do need to do something about it. But bystander care is showing obviously that it's working uh, as well as the quality of the people on the front lines in knowing how to do their jobs to save a life. And so we're very fortunate to have that. We're very fortunate to have TMIT and the MedTech teaching that to every single person every day. What are, the, what are the things that you can do and how you can treat somebody with the eight most preventable causes of death. And so for that, I will tell you it, it's working and, it, and it's a great program.
1: Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you for being kind of a pathfinder and a threat safety scientist uh, Vicki your thoughts same question about weaving together and what we can do to bring together those strands of that safety net using the trapeze idea and the fact that you know there there, there are gaps right now because of what we 've been through but they're also we 've got to broaden the net because things are evolving so dramatically and you're such an innovator and a creative thinker. Anything you'd like to add about how we can all get all work together to get these four strands of the net together.
0: Yes, uh, and I have to piggyback on what Bill said. The beautiful thing about community and unity is that when we come together to solve a problem, there's nothing we can't overcome. And MedTech is a great opportunity to weave all and and to be that safety net, that Swiss cheese, the safety net under the safety net, the, the bystander care that um, uh, Good Samaritan can, can bridge the gap and help give someone in distress those extra couple of minutes when it takes uh, your first responders to get there. When we have a safety net that is stretched and stressed, that has gaping holes in it, um, we have to find another way to overlay. And, and the bystander care is probably one of the most innovative and effective ways to help be a force multiplier in our community. So sharing that information with our community and supporting your firefighters, your police officers, and and being there as their underpinnings um, when the, the going gets tough, don't abandon them, help them. We can all as a community get through this crisis together. Um, Hopefully COVID will not be with us forever. It's an endemic stage, there will be new variants, but if we work together to combat the problem, care for one another, using all the tools that are available so that we can get that person to those level one trauma centers and the best chance for survival, we will save lives.
1: Thank you so much, Vicki. And thank you for being such an articulate, communicator of the complexity of what we're facing. I know uh, many of our audience are families, but they're family members who have spouses and loved ones that are right up there in the front line. And uh, you really provided, uh, you and Chief Adcox provided some real granular detail that makes it make sense why we've got to fund things. Let me come back and the final comment from uh, from uh, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Morris. Uh, Doctor Morris says we you you're so passionate about training and promotion and uh, and we ask you to apply to the narrow scope of the of of uh, law enforcement. But really, the principles that you describe are what we've really got to do to integrate. Uh, the way I'm kind of thinking of it is. The safety net is like that trapeze safety net. It's got big holes in it. And we got to make the net broader because things are evolving. We've got a lot of new things happening. That means the net's got to be wider and deeper and longer. So not only do we miss the holes in the net, but also capture some of the new things that are happening. Is that a fair statement? And how would you like to build on what Chief Adcox and Assistant Chief King had said? Yes, uh,
5: it's a very fair statement, Chuck. And there's no question that the net is in danger, but we can do it. We can actually repair it and we can adapt to the circumstances that we're faced with. Uh, I'm a passionate believer that, in fact, public safety is an essential element of that safety net, along with the medical and other services that you've described quite aptly. Uh, the, The adaptations that we have to make are in place and we're actually making sure that we adapt to that. You've got to have a stronger public safety. It has to be more diverse to have a sustainable government. And that is really where we need
1: to recognize that we're gonna have to do things differently. Well, listen, I would like to thank all of you so much for your speaking. For those that are uh, getting continuing education credits, this will be your 90 minutes. If you'd like to apply for uh, for two hours, we're going to actually uh, uh, play the recorded message from Dr. Boats, who's in the ICU today, addressing the MedTAC-8 and why each one of these are so important for you and your family. There are gaps in the net there's the first thing you could do is to recognize EMS is not going to be eight to 12 minutes response time. And even if it is, uh, you may be sitting in the parking lot with your loved one, we've had one of our dear close friends have a, uh, an accident this week, and it does take longer. Uh, so uh, for those of us that um, that have families, why it's so important to learn some of these basic skills, three minutes from drop to shock, three minutes from a gunshot to, or uh, a, a severe bleeding event to stopping the bleeding can save lives and long-term uh, harm. So uh, what we'll do is we'll thank everybody right now. I'm going to just play the short clip from uh, Jenny Dingman uh, to close us for the 90 minutes. And then those of you that want to stay on, we're going to have Dr. Boat address the the big aid of MedTech, but thank you for our speakers. If you all have to go, we understand many thanks and God bless all of you. Thank you. So Jennifer, would you please close us today with the voice of the patient and thank you for all you do at patient safety and quality.
2: Thank you, Dr. Denham. And I wish to thank all of our speakers for their great knowledge and wisdom here today. Again, I urge all of our participants to please share the recording with your friends, colleagues, family members and neighbors and looking forward to seeing you all again next month. God bless, and thank you all for being here.
1: So we want to thank uh, those of you that want to stay with us uh, right now. Uh, what we're going to do is uh, we are going to uh, now address uh, uh, the, uh, the MedTech uh, topics uh, and the Good Samaritan Care. Uh, uh, too hard to really cover all those topics in our 90, in our 90 minutes, uh, but we have uh, a message from uh, 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 Dr. Boats uh, who will uh, uh, speak to those issues uh, with us uh, uh, right now? And uh, we, uh, so uh, Dr. Boats is a full professor of anesthesiology and critical care uh, at the um, uh, at uh, MD Anderson and the University of Texas in Houston. He's an adjunct clinical professor at the Department of Anesthesiology uh, at Stanford University uh, School of Medicine as well. Uh, we are uh, so grateful to have him as one of our leaders. He's our clinical lead uh, on the MedTech uh, program, and uh, we have a number of emergency medicine doctors as well. He'll be addressing briefly why it's so critically important that everyone learn CPR and the use of an automatic defibrillator for cardiac arrest, why it uh, we can dramatically reduce uh, uh, the uh, not only deaths, but the long-term effects, and we have a number of videos that we use to cover it. Choking and drowning is absolutely critical. Uh, we've got two years of children that have not been in swimming lessons. They're going back to pools and back to the beach and back to lakes, why that's so critically important. The opioid crisis is absolutely uh, terrible. We've got more than 258 deaths a day. Uh, It's gone up dramatically over the course of uh, COVID. And and we have the opportunity now for the public to get Narcan and to have it available as a reversal agent, uh, which anybody could use and the public, uh, and we're helping uh, the public learn and we are training security officers how to teach lifeguards how to teach others, EMTs how to teach others uh, to address this terrible problem of the opioid overdose. Um, we know that uh, one in 10 schools will have an anaphylactic event in a child where they'll have an allergic reaction to a medication, uh, an a, a, a insect bite, uh, or a food. Um, and uh, it's incredible how many adults have these. The Stop the Bleed program, which is part of the American College of Surgeons, uh, is an absolutely uh, terrific program, um, and we are teaching it, and we're teaching instructors now, and we've learned how to actually teach the entire program over Zoom, uh, including using tourniquets, wound pressure, and wound packing. Infections are a big deal, not just COVID, but there is terrible pathogens in our soil uh, and in our environment today that can lead to death. Sepsis is a, a widespread infection throughout the body that could start, and we have many stories that we tell on video, that can start from a simple wound um, uh, transportation accidents are occurring constantly, and now that our kids are more active and out and about and returning to school, uh, uh, these safety measures are 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 absolutely critical. And that's why we've included uh, included it as our seventh target area. And then finally, bullying and why bullying is so critical, leading to what we call bullicide or suicide, but but a lot of other terrible things that can happen uh, as well as a result. And because uh, there's been uh, a lot of pent up anger uh, that has occurred through the uh, through uh, these issues that have occurred with uh, covid we know that we've got some critical uh, critical problems there that we really need to address so uh, i'm going to now play uh, an overview by dr uh, dr gregory boats and then we'll close the extended session so dr boats one of our eight topics that we focus on with medtech is out of hospital sudden cardiac arrest. Is it reasonable to say that to protect our families and loved ones, that this Good Samaritan care is important and that perhaps more of us should get CPR trained in light of the safety net being stretched?
6: I think more so than ever, the bystander rescue care, including CPR, is an important component in life saving in our communities, uh, especially during the times of COVID and as we try to transition from the pandemic to an endemic phase. Uh, Our first responders are stretched. They don't have as many providers to cover the real estate that they have to cover. And so response times may be prolonged. Uh, We know that in sudden cardiac arrest, the most important thing is early and effective CPR. So if our bystanders can provide good hands-only CPR, in the event of a cardiac arrest until our professional first responders can get there, the chances of a good recovery are so much better.
1: Terrific, Dr. Boats. The second topic is choking and drowning. Given that during the COVID period of almost 24 months that many children haven't been able to get swimming lessons and now we're opening up the floodgates with summer approaching, how important is this? Let me restate that, okay. Dr. Boats, uh, the second topic uh, that we focus on in MedTech is choking and drowning. Uh, Given that over the 24 month period that we've been undertaking this program, very few kids have had swimming lessons and yet we know it's one of the leading causes of death, that drowning is one of the leading causes of death. Do you think it's important that we kind of revitalize our focus on the Heimlich maneuver for choking and knowing what to do if uh, someone has drowned?
6: It's absolutely crucial that we implement our measures to manage choking with the Heimlich maneuver and other maneuvers and the rescue care that we use for people who are suffering from drowning or near drowning because of the factors that you suggest. Our response times are certainly challenged and the population is not as well-versed in water safety, and so we need to augment uh, the response to those medical emergencies with bystander rescue care.
1: Dr. Boats, one of the problems we had before COVID but one that has really accelerated in terms of its severity and its impact on our population is opioid overdose. And I know you're very passionate about the fact that we all really need to learn how to use reversal agents. Uh, How important is that now? And why should many of us understand how to use these agents, given that we have uh, friends and family that might be addicted and we also have friends and family that might be on pain medicines?
6: You're absolutely right. The opiate pandemic didn't take a break while the pandemic was front of of mind for our communities. In fact, it's probably worse now than it has ever been. Uh, More than 100,000 Americans last year died from a drug overdose. So having the skills to both recognize an opiate overdose and intervene to save someone with The use of a reversal agent like Narcan, or if it's a family member providing uh, artificial ventilation like mouth to mouth ventilation uh, is life-saving and is so crucial to our response to these, these very, very threatening problems. Many times these people who are overdosing don't know that there's a powerful drug like fentanyl in whatever they're ingesting. And that is such a powerful drug that causes respiratory depression. People often overdose and are at very high risk for dying, even with the first exposure. So our public safety interventions with recognizing the signs and symptoms of a drug overdose, activating EMS and providing life-saving care, whether that's using Narcan to try to reverse the effects of the opiates, which cause severe Uh, respiratory depression, it stops your breathing and leads to uh, low oxygen levels in the body, which can have very serious consequences. Or even providing artificial ventilation in the interim until professional first responders can get there is a life-saving intervention. Those are things that we want our bystander rescue care providers to be able to do.
1: You know, Dr. Boats, we were really surprised when we found out that one in 10 of our schools, our 100,000 public schools and the other schools that uh, that we have across the country, one in 10 this year will have someone who has an anaphylactic event. And the second thing that is really shocking is, is that um, adults, uh, one in 20 adults, at some point in their life will have an anaphylactic event. And the third was that 40% of people will have one without any knowledge that they might have allergies. Now that kids are going back to school and people are back back to outside activities uh, and that kind of thing, how important is it that we all know how to use an EpiPen?
6: I think it's crucial that our bystander providers are able to recognize the signs and symptoms of a severe allergic reaction, something we call anaphylaxis, and treat it appropriately if they have the resources at hand. An epinephrine auto-injector or an EpiPen is life saving in those circumstances because of the overwhelming inflammatory response that can happen with this severe allergic reaction to insect bites, medications, or foods. And so, our ability to both recognize and manage those problems until professional first responders can get there is a life saving intervention.
1: Dr. Boats, the one area that you and I really have fun teaching is the Stop the Bleed program uh, that was uh, launched as kind of a collaborative effort uh, after the Sandy Hook uh, active shooter event and uh, the other events. And it's been really fun teaching people uh, the control of severe bleeding, and we've incorporated it into our MedTech program and our rescue stations that we're placing at beaches and schools and, uh, and churches. How important is it for everybody to know how to stop severe bleeding?
6: Again, the ability to recognize life-threatening bleeding and to do interventions to stop that bleeding is so important in reducing the risk of severe harm or even death to people with an injury that causes excessive blood loss. Uh, Stop the Bleed is a program that teaches bystanders without medical knowledge, how to recognize and manage severe hemorrhage or bleeding uh, until first responders can get there. So that's the use of direct pressure over a bleeding wound, Uh, using a tourniquet on the extremities or packing a wound and providing pressure over a bleeding wound um, if it's not in the extremities is a crucial intervention. We know from the military that that's life-saving. On the battlefield, they've used that now for years and have shown tremendous improvement in survival from penetrating wounds. It translates well into our communities and the ability to have bystanders provide that simple intervention until professional responders can get there is so important to reduce the likelihood of a bad outcome like severe injury or death after those events is crucial.
1: Thank you, Dr. Boats, and you know we started this coronavirus community of practice because one of our eight causes of uh, death and harm were infections, and uh, we have uh, have not really focused as much attention on how to take care of infections that our scouts, our athletes, or our campers uh, might get with the pathogens that are now lurking in the soil and in our community. And so, although we are going to focus uh, tremendously through our program for co- uh, tackling the uh, coronavirus uh, variants, vaccines, masks, um, what about, Uh, treating infections and lacerations and why that's so important now uh, compared to maybe what it was like when you and I were kids?
6: Well, you're right. That's a very important focus for our bystander care. Um, I practice in an intensive care unit and I deal with the consequences of sepsis and septic shock on a daily basis. The ability to recognize a serious infection and treat it aggressively before it gets to the point of severe sepsis or septic shock is again, a life changer. So the ability to try to prevent the body from having a severe infection and the reaction to that severe infection uh, is so important. Uh, Early recognition and early intervention with cleaning a wound and using appropriate antibiotics or antimicrobial uh, medications uh, that are appropriate for the potential infection is so important. But really recognizing that someone has that sort of wound that's at risk for an infection and keeping it clean and seeking medical attention as soon as possible are good interventions for a bystander rescuer to initiate.
1: Fantastic. Dr. Boats, um, we learned in our development of the MedTAC program the en- about the enormous number of transportation accidents that harm children every year, every week, uh, more than hundred a week. Uh, four fatalities. Uh, Over 60% of the drivers are a parent or a friend. Uh, Now that we are back and much more active with school and athletic activities, and we have kids that haven't been around cars and parking lots, and we have kids like my son, who's now 16, and learning to drive, um, uh, frequently we don't recognize how frequent, terribly traumatic, and even Fatal events can occur without prevention of transportation accidents. Your thoughts?
6: Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, We know from the data that's coming out now, as we have emerged from the pandemic shutdown, and more and more people are driving, and more and more people are driving in a crazy fashion, uh, the number of injuries and fatalities from traffic related incidents is on the rise. And so it's surprising that there are so many young kids who are seriously injured or killed uh, with transportation events that are so preventable. And so having good practices, especially in places of transition, like where kids get in and out of vehicles uh, is so important.
1: You know, uh, being a pilot and uh, you being an expert in simulation, we rely on t- on checklists and the one checklist that my son and I use before we uh, drive in the morning as he's practicing driving, going to surf events and practicing is uh, before you turn the key, make sure that you can see, uh, is our very first checklist item. And it came from actually the work that we've done with you on these transportation accidents. So it's a, it, it, we were just really unaware of how traumatic that they could be and how frequent they are. The last topic is bullying. And it really overlaps with the opioid uh, overdose uh, issue and understanding CPR. And we know that Uh, that bullying can be a very important uh, issue. We know in our healthcare system uh, that that we have an enormous amount of workplace violence, but we also have an enormous number of young women, young uh, teenager uh, females that are coming in uh, who are suicidal. And we understand that for every attempt uh, uh, there, or for every successful suicide, there are 25 attempts, and many of them have to do with opioids. So how important is it to prevent bullying?
6: Well, bullying is a very important topic to address in our communities. It's along the spectrum of violence that includes uh, workplace violence and uh, domestic violence and random acts of violence that are occurring in our communities in increasing numbers. It's a behavior that is so damaging to our young uh, children, especially school-age children who are so affected by uh, the external perceptions of how people think of them. And so the effect of bullying on someone's self-perception and identification is a very injurious um, effect when bullying takes place. And so we have to do what we can to try to both recognize and manage the events where bullying take place and try to stop the cycle of psychological and physical damage that it does.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Boats, and thank you for your inspiration, uh, your leadership, and and being really our clinical leader in the MedTech program. It's been awesome working with you. Thank
6: you very much.
1: So as we round out uh, uh, our discussion, uh, we put together in 2021, a family lifeguard program. Um, This was with... uh, Mr. David Bashk who's uh, uh, an award-winning teacher and a group of young people that actually started as scouts and have now grown up to be teenagers uh, to develop a checklist program uh, that can be used by families that would allow them to uh, be able to protect the family during an event. And they address the social, uh, the safe practices of social distancing, use of masks, hand washing and disinfection. We actually address the issue of, uh, uh, of how ventilation could be added with that. And so as we close this program and we talk about the things that are slipping through uh, our safety net, uh, we have to go back to some of the fundamentals. As we think about COVID, uh, social distancing, masking, ventilation, and testing are all elements that are absolutely critical. We can't forget them. We need to be ready and prepared as we head down down the pipe. Uh, uh, and we start to look at what, uh, what uh, will go on. Uh, we're so grateful to have the group of speakers that we've had. Those of you that have watched the long form, it will be broken up into a shorter form so that each section will be able to view separately. And we're very grateful to have this group uh, of great speakers, both pre-recorded and recorded. So God bless you. And we thank you for attending th- this webinar. And we look forward to seeing you next month.